Yeah, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Jonah. Uh, the book of Jonah, and we'll be in chapter number one tonight. The book of Jonah. I like the book of Jonah because Jonah's a lot like Jacob. Uh, he runs, reminds me a lot of me. Uh, he's the reluctant prophet. Um, but uh, the book of Jonah is probably one of the most criticized book in the Bible by uh, various scholars. And you can understand that to some degree because there's quite a fishtail here. And fishermen are known to lie, aren't they? And they, they tell whoppers of a tale. But I mean, just think about it. Here's a guy, supposedly God prepares a fish big enough to swallow him whole. Uh, he's in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. And then he spit out on the shoreline. Uh, that's pretty much a pretty amazing story. And I can understand why maybe some liberal scholars can't believe that that's true. And uh, they, so they kind of come up with different interpretations of the book. And you can find all sorts of interpretations of the book of Jonah because a lot of people see it as allegorical or symbolic, that it really isn't a true story. Uh, I read where one critic said what happened, Jonah had a dream, and what he's doing here is recording his dream. Uh, and then uh, another said that uh, he was shipwrecked, uh, more than likely, and he survived out in the ocean for three days, and then a ship with a, uh, a fish as a figurehead picked him up, and, and uh, that's really the story of Jonah, and really all it is is about giving us lessons on the cost of not obeying God. But what kind of God are you talking about obeying if you can't believe that God could uh, prepare a fish and, and Jonah could, uh, more than likely, I believe he was resurrected. I believe he actually died in the belly of the well and he was resurrected. Uh, you, know, you don't have to see it that way, but I think we'll look, when we look at this, it looks like maybe he did die and he was resurrected. And... Uh, no matter what the critics say, what did Jesus have to say about this book? I mean, Jesus believed this was a real story. And I get seeing he's the author of life and the creator of the universe and he's omniscient and he knows all things, then I have to believe that this story is true. So I, I can't, uh, you know, I, I won't question this story at all. Uh, and, and then think about it from this standpoint. If you can't believe that Jonah was in the belly of the well three days and three nights and was, came back to life, then how can you believe that Jesus was in the grave three days and three nights and came up out of the grave? In fact, Jesus used this uh, as a sign of his, he took it literally, and he used it as a sign of his own resurrection because he says as Jonah was in the belly of the well three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be. And so he believed the story was true. He knew the story was true. And I think you've got to have a lot of nerve to question God. Jesus is God. And that's when you, when you criticize the book of Jonah, you're uh, criticizing or you're questioning the integrity of God. So I think that's dangerous ground to be on. And, and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, as we get into the book. But 
First of all, let's do a little bit of an introduction. Is the name Jonah is Yonah in Hebrew, and it means dove. Now, I wonder why God, God, all of these names have meanings. And when, you, when you look at a name in the Old Testament, it has some kind of meaning that's usually pertinent to the text. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out why would God choose a dove? Well, you could think maybe because a dove is mild and gentle and non-confrontational and maybe Jonah didn't want to confront the Ninevites and God had called him to confront the Ninevites so maybe it wasn't his personality to go out and pronounce judgment on a nation. That would be one explanation. Another explanation might be, remember in the ark the dove was let loose and the dove returned to the, to the boat. Well, Jonah's kind of let loose for a little bit but he's going to return back to the boat. He's going to return back to God. So there's various reasons why it might, he, he's named Jonah, but any, I mean, he's named Yonah or Dove, but, but uh, those are just some possibilities there. Now, as far as who he is, remember when we were looking at Obadiah, we didn't know anything about Obadiah. It's just guesswork to try to figure out who Obadiah was and when he prophesied. You get a little bit of an idea because he speaks of the captivity so some maybe sometime shortly after the Israelites went into captivity around 586 BC but we don't have that problem with Jonah we know exactly who he is I mean look at verse number one he says now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai saying so we know he's the son of Amittai do we see him anywhere else in the Bible well flip back with me to 2nd Kings Hold your place there and flip back to 2 Kings. And go to 2 Kings chapter 14. And look down beginning in verse number 23. We get a little bit of interesting insight about Jonah here in verse number 23. 2 Kings 14 verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah... Jeroboam. Now we've seen this guy Jeroboam a lot when we've been in the, in the minor prophets because several of the prophets spoke out against the kingdom of Jeroboam the second. Uh, remember uh, Amos, that's who he was preaching again. So we know he's a contemporary of Amos and, and some of these other prophets. It, Jeroboam, uh, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king of Samaria and reigned 41 years. And we know the timetable of his reign was somewhere around 785 to 745 B.C. Well, if you read on, it says, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, the first Jeroboam. And he restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken, watch this, through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. So we know exactly that this has to be the same Jonah speaking about the same time. And we know where he's from. He's from a little town north of Nazareth uh, who was from Gath Hefer. So we know where he's from, uh, we know who he is, and we know pretty much when he prophesied somewhere, like I said, around 845 uh, B.C. Uh, to uh, eight, four, um, eight, seven, eight, eight, wait a minute, 785 B.C. to 745 B.C. And this was a time when Assyria, and the capital of Assyria was Nineveh, 
had become the world's superpower. And they were a very evil nation and a very brutal nation. And they had already made some uh, military uh, ventures into the nation of Israel and they had conquered several of the Israelites in some of the more vulnerable areas. And if you think about it, if you look at a map, this place, Gath uh, Affair, where, where uh, Jonah was from, was uh, north of Nazareth, so it was, it was in, right in the line of where they were coming in and making these raids and, and capturing Israelites and destroying their cities. And so Jonah very well might have had some, some close relatives, maybe even his family, his own personal family, his wife and children might have been killed. Some people speculate by the Assyrians. So you can see why he might hate the Assyrians. So uh, here's one of the things, again, uh, one of the things you want to look at is really interesting about the book of Jonah. What does Jonah prophesy in this book? You ever thought about that? I mean, here you've got, here you've got Obadiah, you know, Hosea, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all these people who wrote in these in this time, and they give these detailed prophecies. But, you, but if you think about it, Jonah doesn't prophesy at all. All he does is go and pronounce judgment on Nineveh once he gets in line with the Lord's will. He goes and does that. But he really doesn't prophesy. And we really don't, we really don't have any details about what he said to the nation of Nineveh. But with that said, Jonah gives us one of the greatest prophecies, if not the greatest prophecy in the entire Bible, the prophecy of Jesus Christ. We spoke of that earlier, being in the grave three days and three nights and coming up out of the grave resurrected from the dead. And so just his life uh, prophesies one of the greatest prophecies of all. And there's a lot of really good lessons we can learn from uh, this little prophet Jonah. There's a lot of things we can learn about ourselves uh, when we look at this prophet Jonah, it's sort of, for some of us, it's sort of like looking into the mirror because Jonah does some things I think we all do. You ever pouted before? Jonah pouts. You ever get mad at God before? Jonah gets mad at God. You ever rebelled against God before and decided uh, you're going to do what you want to do? Uh, Jonah, Jonah does that. So we're going to learn a lot of little lessons. I love the little book. I think it's humorous and and uh, at the same time, very serious, and there's some great lessons here. So, so let's dig in, beginning in verse number one. Go back to the book of Jonah, verse number one. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. One of the things we know about the word of the Lord, well, the word of the Lord is sure. The callings and elections of God are for sure. If God calls you to do something, you're going to do it whether you like it or not. I hear people saying, well, I was called to preach, but I didn't preach. No, you weren't called to preach. Because if God called you to preach, you're going to preach. You're going to preach. God, the callings and elections of God are for sure. Because you think about it, God, is, God knows the future. So he's not going to call people who are going to reject his call. So if he calls you, he's calling you to something he knows you're going to do, and he's going to equip you to do that, and he's going to empower you to do that. So whenever God calls you, it's good to know that, hey, his callings and elections are for sure. Now, Jonah didn't like this call. A lot of times we don't like the call of God. But listen to what it says. He says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, that great city, and cry out against it, for its wickedness has come up before me. Now here was Jonah. Nice guy. Doing his own thing. 
he was probably a pretty important prophet because he was prophesying to the house of Jeroboam. I, and I got to wonder what kind of prophecies. I'd really like to have, you know, be able to read some of those prophecies because I don't think they were that serious I, because I, he was in the king's court. And remember, Amos comes and he prophesies against Jeroboam. And what do they do? They, they, they kick him out. They say, you go back down to Tekoa. You go back down to Judah and prophesy to the people down there. We don't want to listen to you. And so I got to wonder, you know, how he was getting along here and how he was really a, a strong prophet of God. I don't think he really was. God's going to make him a strong prophet, but he wasn't a strong prophet at this point. And so here he is. He's minding his own business. He's serving God. And God calls him. He gets a new marching orders from the Lord. And the Lord says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the greatest city on earth. And it was the greatest city on earth at that time. And I want you to cry out against them because of their wickedness and tell them, warn them that if they don't repent, that judgment is coming and I'm going to destroy them no matter how great of a city they are, no matter how big they are, no matter how many people there, I'm going to destroy the entire city just like I did Sodom and Gomorrah if you don't repent. And that's a pretty tough prophecy. And I can't imagine Jonah's reaction. Lord, why me? I mean, I'm doing just fine here in Israel. I mean, why do you want me to go and prophesy against these people? I can't stand the Ninevites and save them when really I would just assume you blow them up and kill them. So, Lord, send Obadiah. He's a really good prophet. Or send Amos or some of your other guys, but don't send me to those godless, brutal pagans because I'm not going to go. And so the Lord says, no, Jonah, I want you to go. I'm reading into this a little bit. And Jonah knew, you know, one of the things Jonah was smart about, he's got some bad theology, but one of the things he knew is you can't change the mind of God. When God might change your mind, but when God is set on doing something, you can't change the mind of God. And he knew that. And so he says, you know, I'm not going to do this. I'm getting out of Dodge. I'm heading out of the city. So Jonah, look at verse number three. So Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish and the presence of the Lord. I'm going to get out of the presence of the Lord in Israel, the Lord's presence here in Israel, and I'm going to run from his presence. And he went down to Joppa, which was a port city, uh, where Tel Aviv is now in Israel. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. Now, if you look at a map, Tarshish is on the far western end of the known world at that time. Nineveh is on the far eastern end of the world. So what's he doing? He's getting as far away from God's call as he possibly can. So he found a ship going to Tarshish and he paid the fare and he went down into it to go down to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, why was Jonah so set in disobeying God's will for him? Like I said earlier, more than likely, he had a hatred for the Ninevites. I mean, he hated them. I, I, I'm sure he knew people that they had slaughtered and killed. And they were a very pagan people. They, were, they worshiped some of the uh, most pagan gods there were. I don't know if there's a most pagan god, but they worshiped these pagan gods, and they did all sorts of immoral things in the process of worshiping these gods. 
And so here's Jonah, this prophet of Jehovah God, and he says, man, I just, I don't want to see these people spared at all. And so he's wishing for them to be judged, and, and he wanted them dead, not spared. And uh, we'll see at the end of the book, he positions himself up on a hillside, and he waits for God to destroy him. Even after he's gone and he's prophesied, he figured they're not, they're not going to repent. He didn't see the part that they repented in, in uh, dust and ashcloth and, and actually were spared. But he goes up on the hill and he's going to watch God destroy him. And when God doesn't destroy him, he is really mad. Remember God says, don't you even care about the little children, the little cattle, the things of my creation that are there? Don't you care anything about any of that stuff? And Jonah didn't care because he hated him that much. And he knew that God is a God of grace. And his desire is for life and not death. That God would do anything he could to spare that people if there was any chance of repentance. And Jonah was right. I love that little story over in the book of Luke, if you remember it, when, when James and John had gone to the Samaritan villages to pronounce the coming of the Lord. And they, kicked, they, they gave him a hard time. They slammed the doors in their faces. And James and John came back to Jesus and they said, and I'm reading here, he says, Lord, and I'm reading from Luke chapter 9. Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But the Lord turned and he rebuked them and he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. Are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy man's lives, but to save man's life. You know, the heart of God is not to destroy people. The heart of God is to save people. And he only destroys people when there's absolutely no hope for them to be restored to him. But he'll go to the very end to, to see anyone saved. That's why you see sometimes you see people that you know that just you, you think, man, God ought to just come down and destroy them right now. And he doesn't. And he allows them to live. Name some names. The Lord, why do you let this guy go on like this? Then when you could send fire down and you could destroy them. You know, God wishes that none should perish. Americans are, are the English or the Italians. He wishes that none should perish, that all should come to eternal life. And I think we all need to be careful that we guard our hearts so we don't have an attitude like Jonah had or like John and James did and we have to be rebuked by the Lord because God wants us to have that same heart for people. I know sometimes I don't have that heart for, for lost people. I'm ready to and even the traffic, bring down fire and just wipe them all out, Lord. You got pulls out in front of me. What a jerk, you know. Send down fire, Lord. Get him out of my way. He's inconvenienced me. That's pretty shallow, isn't it? But, that's, you know, that's the flesh. And by the Spirit, we should have a spirit of grace like the Lord, and we should have mercy on people. We want to see people saved. We want to see people stay on this earth as long as they possibly can for an opportunity to be saved. So here you had this wicked city of Nineveh, the most wicked city in the world, and yet God is ready to show that people grace. That's amazing to me. It's absolutely amazing to me. I mean, I remember 
Ted Cruz talking about New York and how evil it is. And I, you go to New York and there's some evil people in New York. There's some evil people in Lafayette. But God's, God, God has his people there and he, has, he wants to see every person in New York saved. Wants them to repent. And he wanted Nineveh to repent. And so Jonah says, hey, I'm going to rebel. I'm going to rebel against the will of God. I'm not going to do what God's called me to do. And uh, that's not a real smart thing to do, I can warn you. When God calls you to do something, you want to do it. And so he boards a ship to Joppa that's heading to Tarshish, the total opposite direction of Nineveh. And he's saying to the Lord, I'm getting as far away from you as I possibly can. You won't be able to get me where I'm going. Not only was Jonah disobedient, he had some bad theology, didn't he? He didn't understand God yet. He didn't know God yet. He had an impaired view of the attributes of God. He didn't understand that God is omniscient. That you're not sneaking away from God. God knows everything. God is omnipresent. Wherever you go, God is there. And God is omnipotent. He has all the power in the universe to get you exactly where he wants to get you. And if he's called you, he's going to get you there. So here's Jonah with his really bad theology. And I, and I don't understand that because he's a prophet of God. And I have no doubt he had read the Psalms. Probably you'd read Obadiah and Amos. So let me read you just some of what they had to say. Go, go get something. We looked at this a while back. Go to Psalms 139. David wrote this, I believe. One of the psalmists wrote it. Yes, yeah, David's. But look at Psalm 139. Beginning down in verse number 6. Psalm 139. Verse number six, listen, listen, you think maybe David understood the attributes of God? You better believe he did. He understood the creation because he used to be a little shepherd boy and he'd look up in the sky and look at the stars and he had this great heart for God because of all those years of being a shepherd and just seeing the creation and being out in the creation. And he had a great view of the attributes of God. First of all, he knew that God was omniscient. Look at that, look at that verse number six. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. In other words, Lord, you're omniscient. I'm not. You know all things. Then look at the omnipresence of God. Where can I go? Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend all the way to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there too. If I make, take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you're there. You're omnipresence. You're, you're wherever I'm at. In verse number 10, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me because you're omnipotent. You have the power, you have the knowledge of where I'm at. You have the, you're present where I'm at and you have the power to help me and keep me where I'm at. You know, there's no place where you can be that God doesn't know where you're at. That God's not present where you're at. That God doesn't have the power to keep you where you're at. And if you don't know that, you can be the greatest theologian in the world, but you don't really understand the attributes of God. Remember, 
these studies of these prophets that we looked at recently who were contemporaries of Jonah. Listen to what they said. Uh, same thing as David said. Listen to what Amos had to say. And we looked at this back when, when we were in the book of Amos just recently. In Amos chapter 9, verse 2. I'll just read it for you. You want to go back there, you can. Amos chapter 9, verse 2. He says, Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Now he's talking about his omnipresence, omniscience, and omnipotence in judgment here. Uh, David was talking about in keeping his children. But in judgment, though they run, try to run from me, though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, the highest peak in Israel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and he shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword and they shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. When the God, God's ready to judge, there's no running from God. When God calls you to do something, there's no running from God. Flip over to Obadiah, look at verse number four, just the next page. Look at verse number four of Obadiah. Though you ascend as high as an eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. Look, you can read this word until you're blue in the face. You can take all the theology classes that the world has to offer and you can get all sorts of knowledge about the attributes of God. But that's only head knowledge. For God to get that into your heart, for you to truly to know God, you've got to experience God in life. And that's why we go through some of the things we go through. That's why Jonah's about to go through what he's going to go through. Because God wants his theology not in his head, he wants it down in his heart. He wants him to really know himself. He wants us to really know him. And so he's constantly working. We can study the Bible, but, but, but those, that's just head knowledge. He wants that down in our heart. He wants us to know him in an intimate relationship. That's what he's wanting for Jonah here. You know, I bet you Jonah had read these passages we just looked at in Amos and Obadiah. I have no doubt he had read Psalms 139. He probably could quote it. They were, they were notorious for, for memorizing Scripture. But it was only in his head. It wasn't in his heart. He really hadn't experienced God enough to know God yet. But now he's going to get to know God. He's going to experience God. You know, that's why when some liberal theologian tells me that I can't believe that God, this story of Jonah here, I can't believe that God would prepare a fish big enough, first of all, and then put for Jonah to go into his belly and, and either live in his belly or be raised from the dead out of his belly after three days. I just can't believe that. When I hear that, I know that theologian, I don't want anything to do with them because I know they don't know God. 
I know they don't know God. I know they don't have a real relationship with God. Because if you have really experienced God, you have no trouble believing that this is a literal and true story that we're looking right here because you've seen the miraculous in your own life. I mean, just think about it. I mean, if you can believe that God, by his blood, can forget, wipe out all of your sins that you've ever committed or will ever commit, if you believe that God can take your evil soul and turn it into a good soul, into his own very likeness, into his own image, if you can believe that once you were blind and now you, were, you can see, and once you were dead and now you're alive, then I, you, you shouldn't have any trouble believing this fish story. If you've got trouble believing this fish story, you really haven't experienced God. You really don't know about the attributes of God. And sometimes even as believers, I think we begin to doubt because we drift from experiencing God. I mean, if all you do is come to church, if all you do is prayer, your prayers are rote, if all you do is read the Bible as some obligation, if you don't experience God in life, if you don't allow him to guide your life and rule your life as King of kings and Lord of lords, to empower your life, then you're just going to have head knowledge. It's going to be nothing more than theology, but man, I'll tell you what, when you experience God, when you begin to open your eyes and look for God, you see him everywhere in your life. You see him working every day in your life. You see him as your hope. You see him as knowing you. He knows everything about you. He's omniscient. He knows where you're at. He's omnipresent. He's right there with you. If you, if you really believe that, and you, if you've known God and experienced God, you believe he's present with you. And you know that he has the power to take you through any storm that you might be going through right now. He's got that power. He's going to do it if you're his child. If you're not his child, then you want to be his child. That's a simple thing to do because he wishes that none would perish. We see that right here in this text with Jonah and the Ninevites. Who would I wouldn't save the Ninevites. I'd be like Jonah, destroy those rascals. But you see his heart. How much greater is his heart for you if you're his child? going to get you through whatever you're going through. So as we leave off tonight, Jonah's bought his ticket to Nineveh. He's boarded a boat. I can see him out there. The boat begins to set sail. And the wind begins to blow on his face. And the sun is shining. And he's got a big smile on his face and He's thinking, you know what? I'm going to take a nice long vacation from the profit business. All is well. So he thought. We'll pick up the story next time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the lessons that are here for us. And most important lesson of all, Lord, is the lesson that... that uh, you're there, Lord. The lesson that you're, you're, you know all about us, everything about us. And no matter where we're at, you're with us. 
And you have the power to take us through whatever you're allowing us to go through. Lord, if we'll only surrender our life to you. Let you direct our lives. Let you empower our lives. And Lord, when you call us, we're to answer that call. Lord, we know your callings and elections are for sure. And we know that we're going to be at the point you want us to be when all of this ends. But Lord, we can avoid the storms and avoid the bellies of the whales if we'll just surrender to you. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for all you do for us through Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to experience you in a mighty and powerful way. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.